Reject authority. Reject authority. All they are seeking to do, those authoritative figures, all they're seeking to do is to control you for the good of their own institution. It's all manipulation, control. So reject authority. Instead, be guided by your own experiences. By guided by your own intuition. Follow yourself as king, as queen, as lord. Trust yourself. Trust your own intuition. Trust your own experiences and reject authority. This, friends is much of the mantra of 21st century urban America. And we can understand why that mantra exists, can't we? And how many more corrupt politicians, self-seeking politicians, pastors, CEOs, husbands, mothers, fathers, how many more do we need to see before we conclude that all institutions from small to great are rotted out, untrustworthy? So on the one hand... Makes a little bit of sense, doesn't it? To just reject all external authorities. Just trust ourselves. Trust our own experiences. Don't let anybody else uh, control you. You do this, then you'll be safe. Then you'll be happy. On one sense, it makes a little bit of... On one level, it makes a little bit of sense, doesn't it? But of course, the problem is anti-authoritarianism and individualism doesn't work on the ground. I'm assuming that you all want to board an airplane... With an authoritative captain on it, don't you? I'm assuming all of you would want to an army to defend your nation that had a clear chain of command. I'm assuming you'd want to drop your kids off in a place that doesn't teach to reject authority and have the kids sort of let their uh, have their way. Same way in your home. I'm assuming you wouldn't want your kids just to sort of do whatever they want and reject your authority. And of course, also we need to recognize we ourselves are not so trustworthy, are we? We make wrong decisions from time to time, maybe oftentimes. Don't often have the great insight that we might think we do. And that leaves us with a bit of a conundrum, doesn't it? If we can't trust ourselves completely and we see rot in every institution from states to churches to home, well, then how do we get on? What do we do? Can't trust ourselves, can't trust anybody else. Well, friends, I think we find some answers in the book of Kings. Yes, an authoritative book uh, from an authoritative God. A book and a God who, unlike many others, is honest about the human condition and who uses his authority for our good and his glory. And those two things do not have to compete, as we see. We're going to see this play out this morning as we go on in our second week. If you're new, we're jumping into the book of Kings. We started last week. Today we're going to be in 1 Kings 3 and 4. I did not get the page number down for the chair, Pew Bible, and Pew 282. Thank you, Joey. So just a little bit of review from the book of Kings. Uh, The book of Kings is about the kings of Israel. Only all the kings that the author of Kings writes about, they are consciously meant, they are writing about all these kings so as to consciously try to point you to the one true king. It was why Kings was written, to point you to Christ the king. You say, Nathan, isn't that Christian hermeneutical gymnastics? No. Take a look at 1 Peter 1.12 as he reflects, Peter reflects on the purpose of the Old Testament, the prophets of old. 1 Peter 1.12 says, it was revealed to them, the prophets, the authors, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced. And of course, those things that have now been announced are the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's talking about there. The true son of David who has come to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth by the shedding of his blood. On the cross and the overcoming it in the resurrection. This is why Kings is written. Kings is Christian scripture. It's in the Old Testament. It's before the coming of Christ. But it is pointing to Christ. And by the way, Jesus said as much that the Old Testament was about him. He says in John 5 that you search the scriptures. You search Kings because in them you think that they have life. But it is those scripture that bear witness of me. That's the words of Christ. So Jesus understands Kings is pointing to him. And so we're looking, as we walk through Kings, we're looking for three things these in these God-inspired words, three things to instruct us, to inform us, to orient us. The first is power. I'm going to give you three Ps because I'm a good Baptist preacher. Uh, three Ps. The things that Kings is trying to do is the first P is to instruct you about power, in particular God's word. 
Uh, God's power of his word over and against man's word. The power of God's word over against man's word. Secondly, the primacy of worship over against man's false worship. The primacy of worship over God's uh, over uh, of God over man's false worship. And third, the promise of God. This is a huge one for kings. The promise of God to have a king that would rule the world in such a way as to bring about peace, provision, and eternal joy for his people. Those are the themes that Kings is trying to tease out. And last week we saw the transfer of power from David to his son Solomon. God had promised to David that he would have a son who would build him a house and God would establish his kingdom forever. That's 2 Samuel 7. That was a promise God made to David. And we saw that transfer of power take place. Uh, Solomon did get the throne of David, the one that was promised. But we saw that there were some rivals, right? Adonijah was trying to get in there. But in the end, the promised son of Solomon was coronated just as it was promised. And we read in 1 Kings 2.46, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. There we go. Setting the ground for the next passage. So what we're seeing already is God's word is proving more powerful than man's. God's primacy of worship is not being compromised. And God's promise to his people is proving true. But you remember we started off last week by looking at the end of the book. Remember what the end of the book has? Complete desolation. Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, the people of God are exiled. And remember we were asking the question as we walk through this. What happened? Well, we march on, chapter 3. Big idea this morning, real simple, follow the wise king. Follow the wise king. Take a look there, 1 Kings 3, 1 to 3. Right out of the gate, right after the establishment of Solomon's reign, we got some concerns. Take a look. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house, and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord, Solomon also loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Two things there that are concerning. First, Solomon makes a marriage alliance with a nation that used to enslave God's people. Not good. Not a good look there. God had made clear also to not intermarry with other nations that serve other gods. And that's what Solomon seems to be doing. But second, we see that both the people in Solomon himself are making sacrifices at the high places. Now, the sacrifices at the high places is going to be a theme, guys, that's going to be traced out a lot. Remember, I told you last week, keep an eye on chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. That's a theme. Here's another theme. You're going to see this tracing of high places falling out. And this notion of sacrificing at the high places, this is meant to be a negative uh, connotation here. And the reason why sacrifices at the high places is negative or wrong is because it means that people are not making sacrifices where they should be making sacrifices. They should be making sacrifices in Jerusalem at the temple where the presence of the Lord was said to reside. But I want you to notice, as it says there, Solomon's making these sacrifices at the high places. The author right here leaves some room at this point for allowing these sacrifices to take place. And the reason why is because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord, which is another theme. We're looking for the fulfillment of the son of David going to build a house. So that house hasn't been built yet. And so there's a little bit of room to have these sacrifices be taking place on the high places at this point because the temple had not yet been built. David had wanted to build a house for God, but the Lord wouldn't allow him. It was part of the covenant, again, that his son would be the one to build it. And so since that house hasn't been built, these sacrifices being made in the wrong places is sort of okay for now. But you're going to notice this kind of sets a bad precedent. It'll be teased out later. And we read that these high places are located in a place called Gibeon. Gibeon, by the way, about six miles north of Jerusalem. You can see that these sacrifices are taking place there. You see that in verse 4, chapter 3. But we also know from the book of Solomon, sorry, uh, we also know from the book of Samuel by looking down, uh, if you look down later in verse 15, the Ark of the Covenant is there in Jerusalem. Okay, so this is interesting. 
So you have the Ark of the Covenant, verse 15, we see is in Jerusalem. And then you've got the high places being sacrificed to at Gibeon, six miles north of Jerusalem. So you have an altar where sacrifices are being made, Gibeon, and you have an ark in Jerusalem, verse 15, where the presence of God is supposed to be. Weird circumstance, right? These two places being separated. And these markers by the author are sort of like the movie director panning the camera down on a set of keys as a family walks out the door. Y'all have seen that, right? You know how movies do that, right? The family walks out the door and then the movie, the camera goes down and stares at the keys for a second. And you're like, hmm, and then they go off in the rest of the movie. But of course, the director is wanting you to see, all right, there's going to be something about those keys that come back up later. That's sort of what the author is doing here. We're meant to pause and take note of this, this sort of strange distinction, but knowing it's going to have some significance down the road. But back to the story. We get a lot of good news here about the king, Solomon. There's also, we saw a little bit of concerning bad, but there's a lot of good. Solomon, we see, loved the Lord. It says that he's walking in the statutes, right? Which is exactly what David told Solomon to do, chapter 2, to walk in the word. And we remember that from last week, that Solomon needs to be a man that is obeying the word of God if he's going to prosper and see the people prosper. So it looks like he's loving the Lord. He's keeping the commandments. Verse 4, we learn about some major sacrifices being made to the Lord. Solomon's going to make sacrifices to the Lord there in verse 4. And sacrifices had all kinds of meanings, but particularly like we're looking for sacrifices to make some kind of an atonement or payment for sin. And Solomon seems to be doing this. But it is after one of these worshipful moments where Solomon goes to Gibeon and makes sacrifices. It's after one of those moments we get this in 1 Kings 3, 5 to 9. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love. And have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Okay, first, Solomon correctly understands that it's the steadfast, the Lord's steadfast love, his covenant loyal love. It's that, that the Lord has not, the Lord has been keeping throughout the centuries. But also you'll notice, look at verse six. It was the steadfast love of the Lord that established David's throne to Solomon. So it's true. The text does say David walked in faith because of David's faithfulness, righteousness, and upright in heart towards the Lord. But Solomon understands from verse 6 that it was the Lord that kept this steadfast love and that then established David's throne, which is now Solomon's throne. It was the Lord we know from Scripture, looking back into Samuel. It was the Lord that chose David. It wasn't David that chose the king, to, to the throne, but God chose him to be king. And it was the Lord that initiated the covenant with David. And also it was the Lord that initiated Solomon to make him king. And so what the author seems to be doing here is he's basically saying, right, the Lord is the kind of husband in this relationship. David is the kind of bride in this relationship. And the author wants us to know they're both doing their part. They're both doing their part. But it's important for us to see that the Lord is the one that establishes the throne. How? In steadfast love. And in this, guys, we see how God is using his authority. He's, a, he's using it to establish a throne for his people. How? By steadfast love. And it's right here where we are meant to take away some significant points regarding the proper use of authority. The Lord asks, right? Ask for whatever you want. This is sort of the genie in the bottle moment, right? Ask for whatever you want. Ask Solomon that. Now, I wonder, how would you answer that question? If you were just the newly anointed king of Israel, how would you answer that question? And your answer, by the way, can't be more wishes. All right, you can't do that. 
What would your answer be if the Lord said, I'll give you whatever you want as the new king? How would you respond? Whatever your answer is right now, as you kind of come up in your mind, whatever your answer is, that's going to tell you something about yourself. It's going to tell you something about your view of the Lord and the Lord's people. But Solomon, we've already been told he loves the Lord. He's walking in the word of the Lord. And so we find that he answers the question in a very good way. He asks for an understanding mind. He asks for wisdom. Not just knowledge, not just information, wisdom. Wisdom, which is correctly applying God's truth. That's what he asks for. And I want to be clear about this, guys. Asking for wisdom in and of itself is not virtuous in and of itself. Just asking for wisdom. Because you can take that wisdom, you could be asking wisdom to be used to be applied for yourself and for your own glory. But that's not what Solomon does. His request was good, not only because of what he asked, but why he asked for it. Look at verse 9. He asks for wisdom to govern God's people. That he may discern between good and evil. It's a good request. And so Solomon apparently has a, he has a proper understanding of three important things. He has a proper understanding of himself, a proper understanding of the Lord, and a proper understanding of the Lord's people. Of himself, he understands, as it says there, he is but a little child. Dude doesn't even know how to go to the grocery store and back, basically, what he says there. Solomon knows he's not personally equipped to do the work that's in front of him. That's huge. Most leaders think that they deserve the job or they think that they're capable for the job, but not Solomon. He recognizes his own position and his own weaknesses. But secondly, he knows that the Lord is the source of wisdom. When the Lord asked him for what he wants, he asked him for what only the Lord could supply. Wisdom. Solomon would later write in Proverbs 9.10 that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And Solomon had that. Therefore, he got what he needed from the only one that could ultimately provide it. But the thirdly, he also knew the Lord's people. He recognizes this. The text goes out of its way to emphasize there's a whole bunch of folks out there. Tons of them, right? But also Solomon would have known this church, they're a little hard to pastor, right? These folks are a little jacked up. These folks are a little selfish. Not always following the Lord and his commands. And so he asked for this wisdom in order to govern God's people faithfully. Towards the good and away from the bad. And I want you guys to see how the Lord responds to this request. Take a look at verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him. Because you have asked this. And have not asked for yourself long life. Or riches or the life of your enemies. But have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold. I now do according to your word. Behold, I I give you a a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So what the Lord says is so instructive to us, right? The the Lord was pleased with Solomon's request because he didn't use this amazing opportunity to take to when he was asked to have anything he wanted. He didn't use it just to spend it on himself. Instead, he asked for something that would allow him to love God and love his neighbor. He didn't ask for power, didn't ask for glory, didn't ask for riches, didn't even ask for safety from his own enemies. He asked God to give him wisdom so that he could lead God's people in the way that they should go. And the Lord was pleased with that request. And so God just throws in all the other stuff he doesn't ask for as well. Which shows us, by the way, just quickly, what do we learn about the Lord from this? We learn, Lord, that he's the source of love, that steadfast love. We learn that he's the source of wisdom. We learn that he's the source of generosity. He gives him all of these other things that he doesn't even ask for. But even this, the way that the Lord kind of throws in everything else that he didn't ask for. Doesn't it remind us of Jesus who said in Matthew 6, 
right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be, other things will be added to you. That's what Solomon did. And God honored it. And you'll notice, look what Solomon does right after this. Right after this dream, right, where he's interacting. By the way, dreams, common thing, right? Jacob's ladder's in a dream. Joseph is, is uh, instructed in a dream. He's instructing in dreams. It's a common theme in Scripture. But you'll notice right after this dream, Solomon afterwards goes to Jerusalem. He walks six miles down the road, and he goes to Jerusalem before it says the ark of the Lord, and he offers another sacrifice. But I want you to notice, look at verse 15, chapter 3. But notice that line. He offers that sacrifice for his servants. Not for himself, for his servants. So what you have, if we can kind of summarize here, you've got worship of God. That's when he's sacrificing. Right? You've got worship of God. Then you get a request. Then you get a request where David, or sorry, where Solomon asked to lead God's people in wisdom, concluded by worship. So it goes, worship Wisdom, worship for service. That's kind of what happens. Worship, wisdom, worship for service. And friends, this is God's design for authority. It's meant to be from God, for God, and the good of God's people. And any power or glory that comes is only thrown in. It's not the point of leadership. Which explains, friends, where bad authorities go wrong. There are at least four kinds of leaders or four kinds of authority figures, small to great. There are those that want power and glory for themselves and their group. There are, secondly, those that want wisdom without worship. And then there are, thirdly, those that want worship without wisdom. And then there are those, like Solomon here, that want worship with wisdom for service. So the authorities that are mainly or only interested in power and glory for themselves and their group, they typically rise fast and fall fast, even, by the way, if they remain in power. They use people instead of serve people. Their rule is marked by lovelessness and violence and hopelessness, though they look good for a little while at the beginning. You can see this, friends, everywhere from Stalin to the abusive husband. Then there are those that want wisdom without worship in leadership. They accurately try and apply the good and put out the bad. They accurately try to seek justice, but without any interest in worship, without even any interest in transcendence, they lack the depth needed to take people somewhere. So their leadership might be good, but it lacks a kind of direction and only leads ultimately to judgment because it doesn't have an answer for why certain things are good and certain things are bad. God and gospel, as it were, are unengaged. And so people don't know why they do what they do, nor do they know where they're going. So leaders like this, they leave their people aimless because they don't orient them towards worship. No interest and transcendence. But then there are those authorities that want worship, but don't seek wisdom. These people see God's word clearly But they lack proportionality. They lack grace and mercy and gentleness, slowness to anger and love. They're harsh to their enemies. They lack patience. A pastor friend of mine says of these kinds of people that they see things clearly, but they lack depth perception. The Pharisees are a lot like these guys. They were very religious but they didn't know or care to apply God's word, God's word in a world full of brokenness carefully. Nor did they do it to apply it for the service of others. These kinds of folks will want power so as to try to either bully, shame, or uh, guilt people into the truth. They will lack any kind of complexity or proportionality to the struggles and difficulties of a broken world. And they will lose sight of the fact that they fail themselves. These ones that want worship without wisdom. These are the kinds of ones with a big old fat plank in their eye will be pointing out the speck on all you other dudes. Most people will respond to this kind of leadership by just ignoring them, writing them off, or maybe they follow them for a time and they get exhausted by them. But then there are those in this fourth category who, like Solomon here, who worship 
and seek wisdom for service to God and neighbor. They are taking the transcendent truths of God and they are appropriately laying down their words like puzzle pieces to all the different shapes and edges of our lives. They recognize, these kinds of leaders recognize two otherwise competing things. That there is a standard of holiness that cannot be compromised. And this standard has to fit inside of the hearts of clay pots that have leaky holes and distracted visions of the good life. These kind of leaders are being careful and patient yet still committed to the truth. And of course, only Jesus does this perfectly. He is the perfect one. He is, as Jesus says by the way of himself in Matthew twelve forty two. he is the greater Solomon who uses his authority for the good of his people. He takes on flesh, teaches God's people, telling us that the greatest among you is the greatest servant of all. Generously forgiving sin among the worst of sinners. But still at the same time telling them to go and sin no more. Calling them, calling us to holiness with no, no compromises. And at the same time, Jesus being merciful, gracious and loving. Willing to lay down his own life. That he might pay for our sin. Overcome it in the resurrection. That those who repentance and believe in Christ, Christ alone, might have the hope of coming into God's kingdom. With forgiveness and healing. Jesus was and is the embodiment of what Solomon said of himself in verses 8 and 9. And Take a look at that. Jesus really is the picture of what Solomon says there. Solomon says of himself, which points to Jesus. Your, service, your servant is in the midst of your people. He's like tabernacling around. Your servant is in the midst of your people. A great people. And he came to govern. Jesus came to govern them, govern us in order that we might properly be oriented to the eternal good and away from the eternal bad. Which is why Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's trying to govern us in that. And he's in our midst. Jesus perfectly did justice. Perfectly loved kindness. Perfectly walked humbly with his heavenly father. And why did he do that? So that glory may come to his father and we might know the way of right and away from wrong. He did that for us. And Philippians tells us that because Jesus used his authority in this way, laying his life down for service to God and neighbor in the ways of righteousness, Jesus, Philippians tells us, received all power and glory. Just like Solomon had it all thrown in, Jesus gets it all thrown in. And on, in an ultimate sense, such that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth because all authority is his in heaven and on earth. And that came because he is fulfilling in a better sense of what Solomon asked for here. And God, this is what, guys, this is what God intends for all of us with whatever kinds of authority we might have. Worship with wisdom for service. These kinds of authority, friends, you should know. These kinds of authority have existed on every single continent from every generation because Christ has been at work in all of those places. From heads of state to heads of homes and churches. More often than not, out of sight from the world. The world is not interested largely in these kinds of leaders. And yet God puts men and women in places to wield their authority in wisdom and worship in order that God's people might be safe and secure. And as we learn in chapter 4, happy. But let's get back to Solomon, shall we? We see some of this worship with wisdom for service. We see it in action. That's what the author is doing next. What the author does next is give you two examples of Solomon's godly wisdom. And then he finishes off the chapter by showing its effect. Two examples of how this wisdom uh, is being exemplified. And then the effect. That's what he does next. And the first example of his wisdom and authority is seen in verses 16 to 28. Many of you guys have heard about this crazy story. It's a crazy story, right? So what we have here in verse 16, we see two prostitutes come to Solomon to plead their case. So we might, we might imagine a kind of courtroom, right? Solomon sitting up there on the judge's seat, two gals in there, two prostitutes in there with this lawsuit, as it were. And it's a dicey lawsuit. We read that both of these women are pregnant at about the same time. 
They give birth to within three days of each other. And in the night, tragically, one of the children dies because she laid on him. But in the darkness, she replaces her dead child for the child that is still alive and puts the dead child at the breast of the other woman. And so the other woman that has the child that's alive wakes up and sees that the child that she thinks at this moment is hers is dead. Only to then look at the child and realize this is not my child. So the two women get in an argument over whose child the live child is. Both of them are wanting the child that is alive. That's instructive to us. I think it's important to note. In our context, friends, where abortion is common. That even though these women are in very vulnerable positions. Presumably, these are, these are prostitutes, right? They have no men around. No men around. Both of these women, they still want the children. When the child died, the woman wasn't glad to be rid of the child because she couldn't afford them or life was hard and she didn't know what to do. No, they still wanted the child because they understood that life was precious. All of life is precious, no matter what circumstance they're brought into. And so should we. So should we value life like that. But either way, these two women, they go to Solomon with their lawsuit, as it were. They make their case to Solomon and astonishingly, astonishingly, the first words out of Solomon's mouth. All right. So imagine these two women sit in the court. Well, yeah, back and forth. And Solomon says in verse 24, okay, bring me a sword. Can you imagine being in that courtroom? Bring me a sword. Right. And we can imagine, you know, like the deputy guy comes up there and hands her a sword. He's like, all right, got a sword here. What's he going to do with this? Right. The two women sitting there. Solomon says, verse 25, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Friends, what Solomon was doing here is he's using his wisdom. He, he knew he could flesh out the real mother by threatening the life of the child. And that's exactly what happened. Take a look at verse 26. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, well, he shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him up. And then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And listen to the conclusive state. Listen to the narrator's voice. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that wisdom from God was in him. For what aim? To do justice. There's one example of Solomon's wisdom being put in action that he wants you to see. The second example is seen right there in chapter 4. More of the same. Here what the author wants to do is, is he wants us to see Solomon's wisdom in action and the way that he helps appoint leaders to care for the nation of Israel. We get a bunch of names in there. Y'all should go. If you didn't this week, you should go back, try to, try to read all those names out loud. See how you do. It was tough for me this week. I was this morning. Yeah. Ah, anyway, all these names, he's putting them in appointments. The point of the authors, I want you to see Solomon is wisely putting people over in other places to care for Israel. And we read that there's a couple of Solomon's son-in-laws are placed there. We also see a couple of Nathan, the prophet's kids. They're part of that group. And what we see is all these people being put in place, we see the effect. Remember, this is the second example of wisdom. We see the effect of this wisdom to appoint the right leaders. We see that effect in chapter 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. I'd like to say that was a proverb, but... He remember he wrote it in Hebrew, so this is not English. But nevertheless, it sounds good, right? The Judah and Israel were uh, as happy as sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Slide down to verse 25. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. And by the way, that verse, verse 25, write it out next to it in your Bibles. That is a fulfillment of a prophecy to David in 2 Samuel 3.10. That answers a promise that God made from Dan to Persheba. That's a promise fulfilled. 
But then look down at verse 29 to 30. This is meant to be a kind of postscript to this section. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. We learn in verse 32 that he wrote some Proverbs. Maybe you all heard of them. There's a book of the Bible with that title on it. We learn even more about Solomon in verse 33. Apparently, dude becomes an accomplished arborist and zoologist as well. Isn't that interesting? And then we get this kind of summarization in verse 34. Try to think about this, guys, as you hear this. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of earth, of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom. We're going to learn later about the Queen of Sheba that will kind of be an example of this. But I want you to see this. So important what the author's doing here, the narrator's doing. That line about Israel being as numerous as the sand and the sea, you see that in verse 20? That is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham from Genesis twenty-two seventeen. That line about the Euphrates there in, uh, is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis fifteen eighteen. Well, in other words, what the author's trying to do, he's trying to help you see all of these promises coming to fulfill. Be fulfilled. The author wants our hearts to sing. Right? Our confidence in the Lord's promises to lift our hope in the word. To be strengthened as he recounts all these things. But then amidst all that we can think of the soundtrack right. Da, 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 all in G. You know the key of G sounds happy. But then we get this hmm, minor key. In verse 26. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. For chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So you're like, well, Nathan, what in the world? What's wrong with that? Well, the Lord promised Israel would have a king back in Deuteronomy before they even got out of, right? They got out of, well, they got out of Egypt and the Lord gives them the law. He promises they're going to have a king in Deuteronomy 17. And he explicitly says in Deuteronomy 17, 16, do not, that king should not have an abundance of horses for himself. And he goes on to say, and especially don't go rolling up down to Egypt and get them. Which is what we're going to see, by the way. That's what Solomon's doing. And oh, by the way, remember, don't be marrying foreign wives. So this is another, this little line here in verse 26. This is another one of those movie producer elements where the camera pans down on the keys when the family goes out the door. So that you can kind of know, all right, there's something here that's going to come back. The author means to insert a minor key and an otherwise pleasant background music to the story. And we wonder why. Like, what's so bad about Solomon accumulating a bunch of horses for himself? Well, I'll put it to you this way. What if you had a king who is supposed to be a king that is sort of representing God on the earth, and you found out he's accumulating tons and tons and tons of antique cars for himself? He's riding the rolls on Monday, riding the Corvette on Tuesday, riding the Porsche on Wednesday, and he keeps buying more and more cars for himself. And then, oh, by the way, you find out this king that's supposed to represent God. Uh, he also has made a marriage alliance with uh, the Muslim king of Pakistan and who has a Muslim daughter. So as to kind of have peace. Right? You'd be a little suspicious, right? Isn't he looking good? All the other things, it seems like he's doing well. But in those things, you're a little concerned about where this is headed. <clears throat> so that's what the author is intending to do. And so as we step away from the text... What we find is David's son, overall, in some in many senses, his David's son Solomon is loving God. He's ruling wisely in the fear of the Lord. Kings are coming to serve him, to see about his wisdom. But we've got some concerns. And so what do we do with this? What do we take home from all of this? What are some application? I think it's fairly clear, right? Reject worldly wisdom and receive wisdom. Or follow godly wisdom. Reject worldly wisdom and follow godly wisdom. Comes back to that big idea. Follow the godly or wise king. I've defined wisdom as appropriately or correctly applying God's truth. Wisdom is taking what is clear in the word of God and appropriately applying it to what is unclear in the world of God. Guys, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by people that have a bunch of Bible knowledge. That's not wisdom in and of itself. The demons have that. It's good. You need to have it. 
But you know true wisdom when people are taking that knowledge and appropriately applying it in the world. That's godly wisdom. And doing it for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. And guys, that's our work as Christians. The reality is the world is trying to fill our hearts and minds with its wisdom. And the world's wisdom, it changes from generation to generation based off of where you live and when you live. Sometimes the world's wisdom changes by the week, which is why we should not build our lives upon it. It's not rooted in anything. It's always changing. Solomon would go on to write a little book called Ecclesiastes where he says life sort of like this is just a chasing after the wind. There's no rooting. There's no foundation. There's no transcendence. There's no objectivity. It just is always moving around. No, don't, don't live your life that way. It's a fruitless exercise and it blinds the throngs of people in our city every single day. Solomon will go on to say that fearing God and obeying his commands, this is the one thing we must do in a world full of brokenness and temptation. David told Solomon that if he's going to prosper, remember, as king, he's going to have to understand himself to be under the authority of a greater king. That's how we prosper. Whatever authority we have, understanding we're under a greater king. Solomon's going to have to learn to live under the law, under the word of God. And he's going to have to lead others in that word faithfully. Otherwise, it's all going to fall apart and he'll just wind up like every other king in the world. And for the most part, so far, that's what Solomon seems to be endeavoring to do. Not just have wisdom, not just use wisdom for himself, but to apply godly wisdom in love for God and neighbor. Taking God's truth and appropriately applying it in life in a confusing and broken world. For the glory of God and the good of God's people. And guys, we are being discipled every single day towards that worldly wisdom. I just want to be clear about something. So if you think, since we're being so inundated with worldly wisdom in all of the different places, you just need to know, friend, that if, if you show up to church once, twice a month, church is kind of the thing you do when you don't have anything else to do. When you spend, I don't know, just a little bit of time in the Word, a couple of minutes, maybe spend two or three minutes in prayer. You don't really have any meaningful friends that you're trying to get around you. You should know, friend, if that's you, the reality is the world, your sin, and Satan are too strong for you. And they will blow you around. If you're seeking to sort of just kind of barely touch in on Jesus as king, it won't go well for you. Let me advise you to get to a place where you see yourself like Solomon. With tons of responsibility and very little of confidence in your own ability to work it out well. Solomon said, remember that he was like a child. Didn't even know his way around. How is he going to lead a multitude of God's people? And so likewise, beloved, all of you have responsibilities. One of the things we do and we're training for biblical manners, try to have them write, write out all of their responsibilities. All of you have, everybody in this room has responsibilities of various kinds. You have jobs, friends, you have a church, husbands, wives, children, family members, all kinds of different responsibilities. All of those are places God has placed you like little Solomons to govern those responsibilities for the glory of God and the good of God's people. To rule in a manner that makes much of King Jesus. To help others to see Jesus, know Jesus. To teach others to obey all of Jesus' commands. And as we do this as Christians and all of the little responsibilities we have, we are a kind of preview of heaven here on the earth. And if you slow down and think about it, you'll quickly come to the conclusion that whatever responsibilities you have and the ways in which you're supposed to live them out, if you actually slow down and think about all the things you need to do, it sounds like an impossible task, doesn't it? Can I just confess to you? I've pastored for 13 years. The longer I pastor, you might think this is the other way around. The longer I pastor, the more I grow in the faith, the more I realize I'm jacked up and I need a lot of help. And I more, realize the more you guys are jacked up, right? We're, that's just the thing, man. We just realize this about ourselves. The reality, the longer I am a father, the longer I'm a husband, the longer I'm a pastor, the longer I'm a baseball coach down the way, like, man, I am, I got, I need a lot of help. If we slow down and actually think about all that we ought to be doing in all of the different realms of our responsibilities, I think we'd come to the same conclusion. We need help. 
We're just children, not knowing how to go in and come out. But the problem is, too many of us have not gotten that far. We don't think of ourselves as children. We think, too many of us think of ourselves like Solomon in all of his wisdom. We think too highly of ourselves. We think too lowly of others. The kingdom of heaven and the good of the church. We, we don't handle these things with the kind of godly wisdom we need because we haven't recognized first our need for that wisdom. We operate too much out of our own strength and our own wisdom. Which, by the way, sounds a lot like the world's wisdom to do that. And so first we need to get to a place where you see yourself like Solomon. Uh, See the responsibility that God has called you to. See your shortcomings for that responsibility. And then go to the king and ask him for wisdom. Remember this from James. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom. Anybody in the room lack wisdom? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Here's a promise. And it will be given to him. Isn't this what God did to Solomon? How much more might he do it for you, beloved, if he offered you his only son? How much more might he give you wisdom? If he gave you his son. And so friend, reject worldly uh, wisdom. Receive godly wisdom by recognizing your need for responsibility. How you fall short of that. uh, The need to serve others, not serve yourself. And then go to God. And by the way, I would add, surround yourself with other people to help you in that counsel. This is one of the reasons why we, uh, the scriptures, I would argue, teaches a plurality of elder in a local church. It's because Nathan Knight's jacked up. So is Joey. I know y'all don't think Joey is, but he is. I know him really well. So we need each other, right? Surround yourself with people that will love you enough to call you out when they see you heading down to Egypt to go get some horses. Surround yourself with people that will say, no, 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 don't do that. Micah, don't go there. Matt, don't go over there. Stop doing that. Winston, don't do this. No. Surround yourself with people that will love you enough to say those kinds of things. They'll pray for you. Surround yourself with prophets that will tell you what is true and help you apply it graciously. But more than that, listen, guys, be that kind of person for somebody else. Don't wait for all the pastors to do all the work. That's not my job. For all of you who are going to come down, here's a preview of coming attractions, pastor's lunch. My job as a pastor is not to do all the work, but to equip you to do the work. Ha! I'll do the work too, as an example. But be the kind of person that is seeking to apply that wisdom and counsel to other people. Don't wait for people to be that to you. You go be that person as you seek wisdom from God. Like Solomon, desire to be that kind of brother, sister for others, to rule in that way. And know, guys, that the elders here intend to do this for you. We're not always going to get it right. But that's our desire We want to do this. Go to God. Ask for wisdom. I mean, I couldn't imagine leading Israel, but like we have 135 members. It's pretty hard. It's a a big multitude. We're trying to do that for you to help you walk towards the good and away from the bad. Reject worldly wisdom. Seek godly wisdom by knowing yourself, surrounding yourself with godly wisdom. Go to the word, surround yourself with others that do the same. Be part of the church that will pray for you and teach for you wisdom and then go be that for other people. But finally, most importantly, when we say go to God, in particular, go to God's son, Jesus, who is the personification of wisdom and power. Take a look at this passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24. Paul writes, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In other words, what Paul is saying there, you're going to seem crazy out there. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Guys, we are too weak and this world is too strong to wind up on the shores of heaven in our own strength and in our own wisdom. But in Christ, we have power. In Christ, we have wisdom. 
And so go to Jesus, love him, study him, pray to him, seek his face, and then impact others with the love of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the power of Jesus, so that this church might be part of the throngs of churches all around the world that are a kind of oasis to an otherwise worldly world that is so full of uh, worldly wisdom and so lacking in godly wisdom, that we might be a kind of oasis where people can come and get that transcendent wisdom. Go to Jesus. Ask him to save you, to sustain you, to bring with you, bring you home to heaven with him. Seek to govern others in your own lives in this way, using your authority, not for yourself, but for the good of others. Seeking to lead people in the good and away from the bad. Guys, the world is starving for leadership like this. And so let's, what do you say? You and I do that. What do you say? How about we do that together? And the more that we do, the more that we will become a community of heaven on earth where people can eat and drink and be happy. Where people will feel safe in a world that's not. Because they know that we want you here, not to use you, but to serve you. Get godly wisdom. Solomon will say that in one of his Proverbs. Get godly wisdom. Use it to serve others for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. And insofar as we do this, we will be a counter-cultural, safe, and happy home. So may we give ourselves to this work and the Lord's strength for the Lord's glory. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have used whatever responsibility we've had for our own glory. And teach us to seek wisdom in worship for service. Just as Jesus did. And Lord, we confess we cannot do this. Jesus, if only our example, we will never do it. But Jesus is our example, but he's more than our example. He's our power to live like that. He's our example. He's our power to live like that. And may we be a kind of church that is that oasis of worldly, uh, sorry, of, of, of wisdom and worship for service that people might know and enjoy you forever. And this little corner of heaven amidst the country of earth, help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.